Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents The Witch Who Came In From The Cold, Season 1, Episode 14. Two. Haret al-Yahud, Cairo. March 19th, 1968. Gabe Pritchard's posting to Cairo in 68 was his first turn through the Levant. But in the aftermath of the Six-Day War, the atmosphere in the country was less Cecil B. DeMille and more Carol Reed. Less than a year after those brief hostilities, the streets of Cairo still bristled at the humiliation. Getting your ass kicked will do that. Three months in Cairo, and Gabe had yet to glimpse one serving girl clad in defiance of the Hayes Code. This morning, for instance, He'd spent the morning crouched in an oven-hot storage space over a cobbler's shop in the Haret al-Yahud, the Jewish quarter. Twice in the past week, his target, a Mossad agent, had visited an antiquity shop across the street. The previous June, Israel had tripled the amount of territory it controlled in less than a week. When the concerted attack by its neighbors ended in fiasco, Israel took the Sinai Peninsula and Gaza Strip from Egypt, officially the United Arab Republic, the West Bank and East Jerusalem from Jordan, and the Golan Heights from Syria. Yet a mere ten days later, the Israeli government voted to cede the territorial gains back to Syria and Egypt, all except a tiny parcel of land called the Gaza Strip. But Sigint suggested Mossad had moved several assets into Gaza immediately after the takeover, even before the ceasefire took effect. Almost as if they'd been poised at the border, just waiting for somebody to wave them in. There were obvious public diplomatic reasons for the concessions, of course. But the flurry of covert activity cast a peculiar light on the situation. From the sidelines... Sinai and Golan looked just a bit like misdirection, a magician's trick. Nine months later, 
CIA Cairo station identified one of the same Mossad assets in the medieval quarter, posing as a scholar of antiquities. Gabe's bosses wanted to know why. Surveillance had turned up nothing unusual on the man, so Gabe had headed a high-risk, high-reward operation with the local lamplighters. Penetration of a hotel room safe revealed the Mossad man carried artifacts taken from the Qasar al-Basha, a Mamluk-era palace situated in the old city of Gaza. It was starting to look more like plain old graft rather than intelligence. It certainly wouldn't be the first instance of a case officer using information gleaned from work to pad the retirement account. Gabe's job was to confirm that explanation. If the Mossad officer strolled into a store of a gray market antiquities dealer carrying the Mamluk artifacts, then exited empty-handed, that would be fairly convincing. Especially if, on the way out, he obligingly carried a burlap sack bulging with cash. Gabe wasn't counting on it, though. Much to his disappointment, conditions in the field rarely embraced the tidy internal logic of a Bullwinkle cartoon. Foot traffic picked up as the morning wore on. A woman unlocked the shuttered shop. Late forties, early fifties. Long, dark hair with a hint of gray. Slight build, 5'6 to 5'8. The Mossad man's contact? Business was slow on midweek mornings. Jordan Reams took her time reconciling the cash register. There hadn't been many transactions the previous day. The pushy scholar, who didn't know a Berber from a barber, had once again driven her few other customers away with his dogged refusal to accept no for an answer. Just the thought of him wearied her. If he showed up a third time, she might be forced to use the scimitar under the counter to behead herself. But then her cousin Hakim would inherit the shop and the poor witless boy would have to sand all of Jordan's blood out of the floorboards. That didn't seem fair. She set her cup of tea on a display case containing Berber relics, bracelets, earrings, a fragment of undecipherable writing, a Moroccan wooden comb, and opened a pulpy biography of T.E. Lawrence, settling in for a long, quiet morning. She found her place in the book, and reached for the cup, but paused at the wisps of steam dancing above the brim. They swirled as though caught in a breeze, but the chimes over the door weren't moving. If there was a draft in the shop, it wasn't coming from outside. Brow furrowed, she closed her eyes and felt a faint tickle against her skin. She closed and locked the shop again. There was nothing out of place, nothing broken. But something ruffled the fringe of an Algerian Kabyle rug hanging behind the counter. The rug concealed a door, a special door, a heavily locked and warded door, a door she opened infrequently and only for very special customers, a door she'd chosen not to open for the self-proclaimed scholar, a door she checked every evening before closing up shop. Oh, no. With one hand, she eased her blade from the scabbard beneath the counter. With the other, she clutched the charm at the hollow of her throat. 
The ancient words, she whispered, chilled her lips as they escaped invisible puffs of breath that should have been impossible even on Cairo's very coldest winter days. These, too, shimmied in the draft. She closed her eyes, concentrating on the chant. When she drained the charm, she opened her eyes again. Had customers been present to witness this, they might have remarked on how Jordan's eyes had changed, as though now limbed with phantom silver. Her magic-enhanced senses heard no concealed heartbeat, tasted no sweat of hidden assailants. She hefted the blade and swept aside the wall hanging. The door was closed, mostly, but the paint on the door jamb was badly gouged. It looked like somebody had forced the door with a crowbar. The damage to the frame prevented it from sealing properly. So now it admitted a soft but incessant zephyr from the cavern beneath the shop. The wards, powerful disincentives against tampering, laid in place by her grandfather, should have prevented such a crude assault. Jordan studied the door with magicked eyes and gasped. Tendrils of dread braided her spine. The wards weren't ruptured. They were gone. Careless, careless. How could I be such an imbecile? She knew instantly who had done this. The so-called scholar. He'd been obsessed with Mamluk artifacts. He sought to reunite a set of relics, or so he'd claimed and had practically demanded to see anything she might have had in her collection. She demurred, telling him simply that she had none, which was the truth. When she'd laughed off his money, he'd grown angry and stormed off, scowling like somebody determined to do something unwise. She'd laughed that off, too. After all, her shop was warded. She should have realized that he wanted to see her special wares, not because he thought he could cheat her out of something valuable and easily fenced, but because he understood their true significance. And that meant one thing, a flame acolyte. Had he come from ice, the artifice would have been unnecessary. Though Jordan tried to keep them at arm's length these days, the legacy of her family's long association with the ice made for decent, if somewhat muted, relations. They would have had the courtesy to be up front with her. How could I be so stupid? She pushed the door open and stepped behind the rug into a dark tunnel. Jordan flicked a switch. Then, still wielding the blade and her magic senses, she descended dreading what she'd find. If they'd cleaned her out, the chaos those maniacs could wreak. A single one of these items in the wrong hands could be disastrous. How many might suffer because of Jordan's carelessness? The tunnel had been chiseled into the bedrock under the city by unknown persons for unknown reasons, centuries or even millennia ago. She'd been coming down here since she was a little girl, she knew its every twist and echo. But this morning, it had an odd scent. So out of place, it took her a moment to identify it. Petricor. The clean, heavy smell of a cleansing rain on hot stone. 
But the tunnel was kilometers from the Nile. It was never damp down here. Apparently, this was also the scent of broken protective wards. She wished she didn't know that now. She'd expected to find the shelves toppled, every item missing or destroyed. But at first glance, it almost appeared that everything was undisturbed. Almost. To magicked eyes, the lacuna blazed like a bonfire on a moonless night. The items on the shelves were undisturbed, vials containing the ashes of rare plants, unremarkable crystals containing trace amounts of exotic metals, bracelets woven from the stems of flowers that had grown in only one bog on earth, a bog which had long since been drained, fulgurites unearthed in high desert valleys accessible only by mule, a dinner plate-sized piece of bubbled green trinitite from a military base in New Mexico, sundries from every corner of the globe. Jordan saw this instantly from the shape of their accumulated magical aura. But the rarest and most powerful items were stored within hidden clefts chiseled into the cavern walls. One such cleft emitted no magical aura. It was empty. She didn't need to consult her inventory to know what had been stolen. The fake scholar's obsession allowed only one possibility. He, or his flame allies, had stolen a clay figurine discovered by Napoleon's staff in the Ottoman fortress where the campaigner stayed for three nights while preparing for the siege of Accra. The place had many names, for it had changed hands many times over 700 years most recently during the Six-Day War. Napoleon's Fort, Radwan Castle, Kassar al-Basha. Her family had never unraveled a purpose for the figurine, though it had been imbued with staggering elemental power. Whatever its true purpose, the homunculus had been wrought by a master sorcerer in a bygone era. It crackled with a power that nobody should wield not even ice. Certainly not those anarchic bastards in the flame. Jordan doffed her scarf and uncapped a vial of ashes. She tapped a thimbleful of fine gray powder into the center of the silk. Then she bit her thumb and spat a drop of blood into the ash. Next, she set a pale blue crystal into the grit and folded the scarf closed. After tying the bundle together with a leather cord, she placed it in the secret hollow where the figurine had rested for generations. The artifact's unique magical aura had seeped into the surrounding stone. Jordan's makeshift magic dowser come compass absorbed the residuals and began to vibrate, almost imperceptibly, in sympathetic reaction. She jammed the bundle in her pocket before taking a moment to peruse her special inventory. She donned a bracelet of flowering grasses, still green as the day they'd been picked a century ago, and placed a patinaed copper coin under her tongue. It tasted not of metal, but of salt. Back upstairs, Jordan retrieved the scimitar scabbard and hid this beneath her robes. She took extra care to lock the hidden door and recreate the wards before departing.
Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. remote island in Frigid Lake Superior. A fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Gabe, sweating to death in his airless garret across the street, perked up when he saw her depart. Well now, hello, he said, watching her set off at a fast walk. Where are you going in such a rush this morning? In one hand, Gabe had an officer of a foreign intelligence service carrying priceless archaeological relics. In the other, he had a woman who ran a shop clearly specializing in rare items. The math was adding up to graft, not a geopolitical conspiracy of musical chairs. But he wasn't paid to judge books by their covers. Grateful for any break from the stakeout, he set off to follow the woman. A single tail through the crowded rabbit warrens that passed for streets and alleys in Cairo was less than ideal. He should have had a team for this. But he'd never find her again if he peeled off to run back to Cairo Station. She acted indecisively, lingering at intersections to study every path before continuing, stopping suddenly and changing direction, looping back and traversing the same alley over again. At first, he thought these were artless attempts at tradecraft, intended to peel off any followers. But she acted as if she was searching for something, following a trail he couldn't see or hear or smell. His tradecraft was solid, though, and he managed to keep her in sight, even when she strode through a crowded pedestrian market. She never saw him. Of course, she didn't need to see him to sense him. Jordan had given all of her senses a sorcerous jolt. The follower she detected almost certainly worked for or with the man she tracked, and probably intended to kill her. She hadn't expected that this day would be her last, Suddenly, she missed her father and mother more than she had in years. It was an irritated loneliness, however. She'd broken with ice years ago. It figured she'd die doing their dirty work for them, and those idiots would never even realize the service she'd rendered. Then the tugging in her pocket turned into a vibration as she neared the ley line beneath the Masar al-Adima, Old Cairo. Her makeshift dowser trembled so rapidly it started to hum. 
The clay figurine was nearby. But given the man trailing her and his probable intentions, it seemed unlikely she'd ever get it back to her shop intact. The best she could hope for was to destroy or corrupt the statuette before Flame absconded with it. She had to work quickly before her follower intervened. She ducked around the corner and into the shadow of a minaret. Momentarily out of his sight, she snapped the bracelet. This released the magic that had sustained the dead grasses. The sundered bracelet browned and withered even before it hit the ground. The grass puffed out a little cloud of silvery seeds as it crumbled to dust. They drifted to Jordan's feet, tickling her toes just as her follower turned the corner. Surprise creased his face. What the hell? For a moment, Jordan feared the spell had failed and that he was alarmed to find her standing ready to confront him. Her hand went to the scimitar. But then he frowned and sprinted to the end of the alley, the breeze of his passage fluttering the hem of her shawl. She counted 60 seconds after he disappeared around the corner. Then she doubled back. The concealment glamour cloaked her even in bright sunlight, rendering her shadow a gossamer silhouette. She was almost atop the Cairo ley line. The dowser brought her halfway down the street to a sun-bleached wooden door that had once been painted a mesmerizing azure, like the doorways of Mykonos. She knocked. No footsteps echoed through the house. Nobody called out. Jordan knocked again, more loudly. Still no answer. She bit her cheek until the iron tang of blood mingled with the saltiness of the charm beneath her tongue. Then she worked up a good bit of saliva and spat on the lock. Her spittle, foamy pink with blood, sizzled on the escutcheon. The brass filigree corroded. A moment later, there came from inside a metallic clunk, suggestive of a brass doorknob hitting the floor. The door swung open at the touch of her fingertip. Gabe turned the corner into an alley. He'd unfolded the Cairo street map from the breast pocket of his shirt. The accoutrements of a tourist were a flimsy disguise, but better than nothing. The shopkeeper had vanished as if swallowed by the sun. But halfway down the alley, he now saw two men lugging crates from the back of a truck through what appeared to be a service door. Gabe passed them without stopping, too engaged in berating his map to pay them any notice. One of the men was the Mossad officer from Gaza. Okay, this is good enough, Gabe told himself. You found them. You can pin this place on a map. And you've pushed your luck to within a hair's breadth of reckless. Time to go back to Cairo Station and share what you've learned. Let the people who really know this city do their thing. He stopped where the alley merged with a crooked lane and sighed. Why do I never listen to good advice? He doubled back. The men were gone, but the truck hadn't moved. The keys were still in the ignition. Also on that same ring, a key to the service door. Jordan was grateful for the lingering effects of her enhanced vision. The building had no windows, no skylights, 
Even at midday, it was dark as sin. No mere house, this place. It fairly thrummed with the power of the ley line running directly through its foundation. If this were an ice property, she'd have known about it before now. That pointed to flame. And the site was well suited to major works of magic. Her magic ears twitched at the faint murmur of voices emanating from beneath the floorboards. Of course. Whatever they were doing, they'd want the figurine as close to the power source as possible. Like her shop, this place had been built over a cavern hewn into the ancient bedrock of an ancient city. The stairs didn't creak. These, too, had been hewn from the bones of the earth, and worn smooth by countless feet, it seemed, much like the marble outcrops of the Acropolis. Still wrapped in gossamer shadow, she reached the bottom lightly as a cat, then crouched behind a pillar that had probably been supporting the roof of this chamber since Tutankhamun's grandfather was a newborn. Half a dozen men and women milled about a long, low wooden table in the mustard yellow lamplight of the chamber, clearly waiting for something. Each corner of the table sported a shackle on about a foot of chain. On an adjoining plinth sat the clay figurine stolen from Jordan's shop, a pick poised to strum the ley line. The ages of the assembled flame sorcerers ranged from mid-thirties to just shy of crumbling dotage. Jordan didn't recognize any of them, but she could speculate about the oldest person in the room. His age and accent clued her in. Terzian, an Armenian who'd been a noteworthy flame acolyte decades ago. She'd heard of him over the years. Every ice sorcerer in this part of the world had heard the terrible stories, though few claimed to have ever seen him. Ice considered him a unicorn. He spoke now to a woman perhaps twenty years Jordan's junior, in a voice like the creak of a sepulcher door. But the ley line had Jordan's enhanced senses crackling, I envy you, girl. The woman closed her eyes and dipped her head low, a gesture of humble thanks. I'm honored, sir, but this should be your moment. You've worked toward this for so long. She trailed off, the unspoken conclusion hanging in the air between them. Too long. The decades weigh too heavily. I wouldn't survive the procedure. Procedure? That was the end of their conversation. For then, two men descended the stairs, each carrying a chest. Jordan held her breath, but the newcomers walked past her hiding spot without twigging to her presence. When they joined the circle around the table, she recognized the pushy scholar who'd been visiting her shop. Just got off the telephone with Rome and Peking, he announced. They're in position. This catalyzed the group into action. Terzian went around with a knife and a cup, collecting blood from all the acolytes. The new arrivals opened the chests and distributed charms to the assembly. The accumulated power of the objects, exponentiated by the ley line, imbued the chamber with an almost unbearable physical pressure. The woman to whom Terzian had spoken lay upon the table, 
Two others snapped the shackles around her wrists and ankles, while another gently placed a leather bit in her mouth. She worked it around a bit, then gave him a sharp nod. Jordan had never heard of any ritual like this, something the upper echelons of flame had been pursuing for decades. That wasn't promising. The figurine was apparently the linchpin of the operation. She gauged the distance from her hiding spot to the plinth. Could she sprint across the room and smash the clay before they tackled her? Proximity to the ley line had turned her simple concealment spell into a cloak of shadow darker than the finest sable. The chanting began the moment the subject was settled on the table. The syllables of a nameless language reverberated through the stone chamber, strumming the ley line and assaulting Jordan's enhanced senses like knitting needles jammed into her eardrums. Now was her chance, while they wove the basis of their spell, before the intended effect took place. But eavesdropping on the chant was like peering through a thick fog. It afforded glimpses of something hidden, a sense of the sorcerer's intent. No, that can't be right. That's not possible. Surely even Flame isn't this reckless. She prepared to hurl herself across the room. She crouched, pulling into herself as though her entire body were a spring. She visualized the choreography, the last action she'd ever take. Leap out of hiding, shove him aside, vault that table, grab the figurine, and hurl it to the ground. She could do it, though she would have felt more confident had she been 15 years younger. She made her peace, drew a calming breath, and counted. One, two. From behind her came new footsteps and a sharp inhalation. The man who'd followed her from the Haret el-Yahud, he might have been an American, sidled down the stairs. Jordan tensed, but the look on his face made it clear he wasn't a part of this. And the scent of his sweat told her he didn't understand what he saw. It frightened him. It scared Jordan, too, because she did understand what was happening, even if she couldn't quite believe it. The chanting reached a crescendo. The magical call and response lured something unfathomably ancient from the bones of the earth. The lamps flickered in a non-existent breeze. The universe convulsed. Something entered the chamber. Terzian lifted the clay figurine in his left hand. A hollow figurine, Jordan remembered. She'd never put any significance upon that until now. His other hand held the knife. He raised his arms, brandishing both over the woman on the table. Jordan had the gist of it. The ceremony was akin to a magical blood transfusion. But the clueless American didn't understand. Holy shit, he blurted. Part of Gabe wondered how his report would go over with the station chief when he got to the part about cultists and human sacrifice. At the very least, he was looking at a six-month psyche eval. The rest of him knew the worry was moot because his chances of getting out of this room had just taken a torpedo below the waterline. They'd heard him. 
And as one, they turned to stare at him. Even the poor woman on the table, the whites visible in her terror-widened eyes. Kill him, said a man who looked old enough to be Dirt's older brother. Jordan knew a second chance when she saw one. She leapt from her hiding spot, elbowing a flame sorcerer in the neck as she strove to cross the chamber. It was like trying to dive into molasses. The summoned entity carried massive metaphysical heft, which pushed against Jordan's concealment spell like a magical headwind. She vaulted the table. Oof, said the woman chained there, swung her legs up and kicked. Just as Gabe turned to run, a shadow streaked across the room. But this shadow was a physical thing, and it lashed out at the earthen doll in the old man's hand. The heel of Jordan's boot connected with Terzian's outstretched hand. The clay shattered. The old man opened his mouth to rage, but the destruction of the spell's focus released the accumulated magical potential in an instant. To Jordan, it was as though she'd bitten a live wire. Her concealment spell shattered. But to the flame acolytes blood bound into the magical weavings, it was a metaphysical hand grenade. They collapsed, a room full of marionettes with broken strings. The chamber reverberated like an overstretched drumhead, crackling with a vast store of dangerously unconfined magical potential. I'm going insane. One moment, there was a room full of cultists getting ready to murder him. The next moment, they were sprawled on the ground moaning, while the woman from the shop appeared out of nowhere. The intended victim was out cold. Three things happened at once. Jordan turned to grab the interloper and flee. But the idiot American stumbled the rest of the way down the stairs, apparently intent on freeing the shackled woman and the inhuman entity became an intangible maelstrom as it ricocheted through the chamber, seeking a host it could no longer perceive. So, it tried to wedge itself into the nearest healthy body. The American arched his back and screamed. Jordan caught him before he cracked his head on the floor. She was tempted to leave him there. She couldn't afford the dead weight. By tomorrow morning, every flame acolyte within 200 miles would be searching for her. But she knew they'd torture the foolish American, running enchanted flensing knives through his soul until there was nothing left of him but a drooling, quivering heap, all because of her careless mistake. Jordan lugged him up the stairs. He improved, slightly, with distance from the ley line. She dragged a yammering madman into the sunny alleyways of Cairo. You're listening to The Witch Who Came In From The Cold, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I 
wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. The Witch Who Came In From The Cold is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Lindsay Smith, Cassandra Rose Clark, Ian Tregellis, and Michael Swanwick. Performed by Christine Lakin and John Glushevich. Directed by Dennis Keo. Produced by Julian Yap and Marco Palmieri. Associate Producers Corey Barton and Devin Shepard. Executive Produced by Molly Barton. Audio Production by Literati Audio. Audio Editing by Evan Arnett and Fred Koch. Mixing and Mastering by Jeremy Wesley. Original Music by Katherine Anderson. Find more shows like The Witch Who Came In From The Cold by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.